right, welcome to day 364 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Nehemiah 11.22 through 12.47, Proverbs 31.21 through 31, and Revelation 21. And uh, so yesterday in Nehemiah, we left off where the individuals who were appointed to live in the city of Jerusalem, the, the heads of the households at least, are named. And here we begin with uh, some of the temple personnel or some of the you know particularly religiously high-ranking personnel. Uh, we're given the name of the overseer of the Levites, whose name is Uzi. And, um, and also you've got the sons of Asaph, the singers, right? A lot of psalms are attributed to the sons of Asaph. And it says that they were over the work of the house of God, lest we think that all these guys did was sing, right? Like they're just sitting there ready with their tambourines and lyres and and uh, magnificent voices. Uh, no, they, they had other responsibilities as well. For there was a command from the king concerning them, that would be King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. Uh, okay, so the they are uh, remember that the the king is committed to maintaining the temple, including uh, maintaining provision for the people who served it. Um, of course, the the institution of tithes is being um, has has begun, and so they're going to be less dependent on that. Um, and then also we're told of a guy named Pethahiah who is the at the king's side in all these matters concerning the people. This is apparently an ambassador to the Persian king as Nehemiah um, continues his ministry there. And uh, then uh, we're told about um, some of some of the villages of the cities that uh, surround Jerusalem. Okay, remember, so like you've got the major cities and then all the cities are, the landscape is kind of dotted with smaller vi- uh, villages. So you get the ones from Judah and then starting in verse 31, you get the ones from Benjamin and in verse 36, we read that certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. Uh, there is a bit of a shortage of Levites. I don't know if I've really emphasized that, but but here we see that uh, Benjamin was short some Levites, and so some of the ones from Judah are assigned to them. Then verse 12 rewinds a little bit, which is not really that much of a surprise because Nehemiah is kind of all over the place chronologically, as we've seen, but it goes back to those who came up with Zerubbabel, so not the absolute first to return from exile, certainly not those who were left in the land, but back in the days of Zerubbabel, who I've noted is the second known uh, governor of the province of Yehud under the Persian monarchy. And the chief priest in that generation, as we know, was Yeshua, or Joshua, as he's called in the book of Zechariah. Um, and if you note here, there are 22 uh, priestly families that go up with him. Uh, eventually, this number will be turned into 24 by the time of Jesus. Um, and these are families that basically take turns each week of the year. They, each one gets uh, two weeks out of the year to serve the temple duties in Jerusalem. And you, you, uh, this is the background of what's going on with Zechariah, the dad of John the Baptist. So like they... They, their ordinary duties cover the 48 weeks, and then the remaining weeks are holy weeks where it's like all hands on deck. But we don't yet have that full 24. Here we get the 22. Uh, and again, these are these are among the early generation of returned exiles. Uh, the chief pre, the chiefs of the priests of their brother and of their brothers in the days of Joshua, Joshua. And then you get the Levites in that generation named in verses 8 through 11. 
And then verse 12 goes to the next generation where we learn who Jeshua's son was, Joshua's son, Yoyakim would be how you pronounce his name, and uh, as well as the heads of the father's houses um, who were under him. Remember, the high priesthood is a hereditary office. And we'll see in just a few verses, verse 26, uh, this line confirmed, uh, Yoyakim, the son of Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak. Okay, and then we get the third generation of priests, the days of El- Eliashiv. So the first generation to come up with Zerubbabel at Zerubbabel's time is Yeshua. The second one is Yoyakim, and now here we have Eliashiv. And this is the guy at about the time that Nehemiah steps on the scene, and we know this because in um, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it is he and his uh, his household— that is building and consecrating the sheep gate when you know when the when the the building project is actually taking place. Um, the Levites are recorded as heads of fathers' houses, which isn't that unique. A lot of people are. Um, so too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. This is referring to Darius the second, who reigned from 423 to 404. And as for the sons of Levi, their the, their heads of fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles. This is not the biblical book of Chronicles. This is a, the book of records, which uh, Nehemiah presumably would have used as a source until the days of Yohanan, the son of Eliashiv. Uh, interestingly, uh, I think I've mentioned Elephantine, that is that uh, kind of Jewish settlement in Egypt at about this time and that there are some texts, some papyri that uh, survive from it, and um, in one that is dated 410, so right there smack dab in the middle of the reign of Darius II, it names the high priest, in fact, as Yonahan. So that fourth generation high priest is not only mentioned here in the Bible, uh, but at the same time is mentioned in an extra biblical text, which I think is interesting. And the chiefs of the Levites are then mentioned uh, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. David appoints these back in First Chronicles 25, watch by watch. It's a watch to do this, to, to, to praise and give thanks to God, that, that David not only is concerned that the formal rituals are being carried out, but that you have people there who are ensuring an atmosphere of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Um, then verse 26, these were in the days of Yoyakim, that is the uh, that is the second generation priest, son of Yeshua, son of Yodzadak, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of Ezra, and, and of Ezra, the priest and the scribe. As I said, we're being given both the second and the third generation of priests and Levites. Now, uh, I mentioned this back when we were in chapter 3, and as we just saw in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, where we noted Eliashiv and his work on the sheep gate, and specifically it says that they consecrated it, the sheep gate being very close to and connected to the temple. And I mentioned then that the entire wall is eventually purified and consecrated, and that is what is uh, going to go on here now. So you have what is called the dedication of the wall, where all the Levites are summoned to Jerusalem to celebrate with dedicate the dedication with gladness, thanksgiving, singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the singers are gathering together. Uh, we learn that those who were Levite, those Levites who were singers, had uh, built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And so they all, they and the priests all purify themselves. And then the rest of the people are purified, as well as the gates and the wall. So this is a holy occasion. 
Then notice it shifts once again to the first-person narration from Nehemiah's standpoint. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. So choirs, singing groups. And uh, one went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. So so if they're starting up north, um, remember how I described Jerusalem as being really wide for the top—as being like north-south, right— really wide on the top half in the northern half and really skinny in the southern half. And so they make a trip all the way south to the dung tip, to the dung gate, which is on the southern tip of uh, the western side of the city. So all the way down to where it narrows down. Um, and then you're given the names of the guys who, who did that, um, who had, who uh, apparently are, are singing and giving thanks and uh, and Ezra the scribe, we're told at the end of verse 36, is going before them. And then at the fountain gate, which is now they've they've rounded the southern tip of Jerusalem, um, that 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 skinny part that is uh, also known as the city of David. And uh, they are going back up north. And so first they get to the fountain gate, which is right there, almost opposite the dung gate. And they went up straight uh, by the stairs of the city of David to the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the on the east and the water gate is right where the city right before the city starts to widen but this is now of course on the west side of the city then the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and I followed them with half the people above to the tower of ovens so this is these guys are now going back this is the the second group now they're going back up the western wall and um, and they go to the to, that's and and they go up to the point where it widens, and then beyond that to the broad wall. The broad wall is a thick wall on the on the west. It's not the entire western wall. It's just up there in the north of the city, and uh, and not even the entire fat northern section, but pretty much just like uh, west of the Temple Mount. Um, and remember the gate of Yeshana. In verse 39, remember that one? That's the one where some translations will translate it the old gate. This is the one on the very northwest corner of Jerusalem. It's on the western wall, but it's pretty much right right as you come as it intersects with the the northern wall of the city. Um, and they go back to the fish fish gate and uh, and then you and then it describes the tower of Hananel, the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And those are all locations that are close together. On the northern wall, essentially where where they started, they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and uh, I and half the officials with me and the priests, uh, the singers sang, and verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. Um, the women and the children also rejoiced. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So this is a great day, and um, everyone there is exceedingly glad. And then today's reading ends with uh, those who are uh, responsible for receiving all the contributions into the storehouses, um, the contributions uh, required by law, whether it be uh, first fruits or tithes or free will or anything else, and um, uh and it, t- it says that they, they performed the service of their God in the service of purification in verse 45. That is that the gifts have to be purified properly. These are going to be used in the temple, and so they have to be holy. Otherwise, you're touching unpurified stuff, and so let's just do it when we receive it 
and uh, and we'll be good. I hope no grasshoppers die in that room. But uh, but yeah, so that's uh, that's what they're doing there. And um, and we're told that uh, the the singers and the gatekeepers are, are participating this in as in this as well. Of course, they these are both groups of Levites, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. Uh, for long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So I think that the, uh, I think that the uh, picture that you're given here is that the the singing Levites and the gatekeepers, who are were also known to carry quite a tune, are doing this work and uh, you know singing praises as they're doing it. I think that's the picture that's being portrayed here. And in all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah. They gave daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. They set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Remember, in 1038, we uh, I mentioned the tithe of the tithe that goes to the priests from the Levites. Okay, let's go now to Proverbs 31, 21 through 31. Uh, I'm in generally I'm generally a pretty big fan of the reading plan, and I've only modified it in a few places. If I could go back, one way that I would modify it would be to put Proverbs, the the two chunks of the virtuous woman, back to back. So you don't have several Psalms intervening and you're like, wait, what was said before? But if I can remind you, these are the words of King Lemuel, uh, which his mother taught him. And um, among the things are the kind of woman that she he should seek out. So we saw a lot about her diligence, remember, like waking before the light and providing even for her maidservants. Uh, and now here we see a lot of um, this, a lot of new points as well. Uh, she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. So she dresses her family well. They don't have to worry about the cold and not only is it functional clothing, it's nice clothing as a result of her industriousness. Also, as a result of her industriousness, her husband is known in the gates uh, when he sits among the elders of the land. So uh, here I think you have a, a wonderful picture of a husband and wife team, right? That they're that they're both making life work and, and it takes the diligent work of both the husband and the wife to be able uh, to cause... Um, the family to prosper and the family to be a blessing to others, right? Um, and which is hard to do if if either the husband or the wife is not pulling their weight in in the home. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. So uh, there is uh, she is participating in trade, just like we saw uh, the other day when we were in Proverb the first part. Uh, she where she's buying fields here now. She's selling some of what she has made. Um, strength and dignity, though, are her clothing. So lest we think that it's all about the scarlet stuff and all about being warm, what she's truly clothed with is strength and dignity. She laughs at the time to come, right? She doesn't have to worry about what's coming. She she knows um, uh, she's confident because she has practiced the, the, the ethic of the ant rather than the ethic of the sluggard. And, um, and she opens her mouth with wisdom. She herself is like Lady Wisdom. And teaching is characterized here as the teaching of kindness, and it is on her tongue. Okay, so to teach wise words is a kind thing to do. If you care about people, you teach them what is truly wise. She looks well to the ways of her household 
and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Again, her diligence is emphasized again and again. And uh, those who know her the best um, are the ones who are first to sing her praises. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And this is really cool, I think, because um, sometimes the members of your own household can be the hardest ones, uh, I don't want to say to impress, right, but to walk godly before because they see you warts and all. But those who spend the most time with her, those who live with her and, uh, and, and benefit from her presence and from her hard work um, can attest, yes, this is a woman of God. She may not be perfect, um, but we love her and uh, she enables our family to prosper. And I really love how verse 29 goes, right? Notice it says, many women have done excellently, but, and then what's that next word? You surpass them all. King Lemuel has someone in mind. He's, it's, it's, it's like he's, he's teaching wisdom to whomever will listen, right? Whomever this is, is written for, but he also, and you could kind of imagine him, right? Like, I know this is a little bit speculative, right? But I think it gets the point across. Like you can imagine him sitting on the throne and looking out to the people who have come to listen to him and he's reading them this or reciting them this. And, you know, he's going down, her children rise up, call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently. And then you could, you can almost envision him turning his head and looking at his queen sitting next to him. But you surpass them all. He has someone in mind. Uh, and then finally, charm is de- deceitful and beauty is vain. So are those the things you're going to look for in a wife, King Lemuel? But a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. That is the source of all these things she is doing, right? Because she fears the Lord, and that is the beginning of wisdom. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Thus ends the book. Of Proverbs. Okay, let's go now over to Revelation chapter 21. Okay, so these two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, no surprise, but wrap up the whole Bible. Like there's, um, you know, sometimes books in scriptures are placed because uh, of length. Sometimes they're placed, you know, for, for other like logical reasons, right? Try to group all the letters of Paul together, things like that. Um, but the the placement of revelation at the end of the bible i think is is very uh, important because we actually see a lot of biblical theological themes uh, being tied up here and in fact you know when you when you do look at the bible from the standpoint of of themes that run through it whether it be like temple or people of god or grace or all all, all types of stuff right war maybe um you see all of them finding their culmination in these final chapters in Revelation. Um, So these final chapters of Revelation are this beautiful treasure trove of things finding their fulfillment, things that we've been looking at now throughout the whole year. All right, so let's begin. So he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember that I, I mentioned this the other day about the sea. I think maybe yesterday, actually. Um, and I mentioned that uh, that that in the Old Testament, right, and even in some places in the New, like think about Paul's journeys at the end of Acts, the sea is this frightening place, which is often depicted as chaos, 
that God's people look to him to tame. And so here, again, being very conscious of the fact that we are steeped in symbolism and imagery, the fact that the sea is no more, this this great and frightening thing, um, no longer bothers mankind, is no longer is no longer there. Um, uh, and again, this is symbolism. I don't think we can infer that in the new heavens and the new earth there will be no large bodies of water, or that the Mediterranean will be drained dry. That's not the point, right? The point is to paint a picture of something that is very much beyond our comprehension. You know, and if if we get to heaven. Uh, and we get to the new heavens and the new earth, and hey, that Mediterranean uh, is now a dry basin. All right, I was wrong, but I think I think what we are to do is to realize that we're being encouraged to grasp a reality, to te- to think in biblical along um, along the lines of biblical imagery, um, and that is the picture that God wants us to paint, understanding that what He has in store for those who love Him is. Uh, far surpasses what our minds can con- can contain. So we look to the images and we look to what these things signify. And you know, not not only do we look then to the Old Testament to for this imagery of sea, but think about where what what's gone on with the sea in Revelation. Right, this is where the beast comes from, and and remember the association of the harlot sitting on the sea. And then in verse two, he says, "I saw the holy city." New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think back to all the prophecies in the Old Testament that we looked to, where this ultimate hope that is held out, that is that Jerusalem would be exalted over all the kingdoms of the earth, and all God's people would be called to her, and the nations would come to her, and those who feared God would all be welcomed there, and it would be this holy city. Here we see that realized the new Jerusalem as the centerpiece of the new heavens and the new earth. But notice also that it is it is mixed with the imagery of the bride. And we saw the marriage supper of the lamb just back in chapter 19, verses six and following. And um and right there there that is picking up the imagery of of the bride of Christ, of the church as the bride of Christ. So it's like the, the, the church is the bride, is the city. It's these mixing of metaphors again. Remember, the lion is the lamb. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Remember who's sitting on the throne. God is sitting on the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and we will be, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is Old Testament covenantal language. Ever since we first heard it in Genesis 17, I have noted that this is the heart of the covenant. They will be my people. I will be their God. And moreover, notice that the ideal that the temple represented, the temple in the midst of the the, the city of Jerusalem represented, right? The dwelling place of God with man. When, when God first announced it back in Exodus 25.8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is the place where God dwells. And here now, the dwelling place of God is with man. That has been achieved. What was what was represented and semi-accomplished imperfectly through the tabernacle and then the temple is now realized here in the New Jerusalem. And then verse 4 shifts very quickly our attention to what will not be there. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And I think of um, 
actually I'm of a message I'm preaching at church this weekend where I talk about um, how God uses suffering and pain in our lives to bring us to himself and that the kingdoms that we are called to give up for Jesus are nothing compared to the kingdom that we gain in him. And so you take those hardships of life, and, and they are very, very hard. They are very difficult. This is not to minimize them. Um, and you ask, on this day when this happens, were those things worth it because they drew you to him? I don't think there's going to be any question about that. Then in verse 5, he says, He who was seated on the throne once again speaks out, and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise that is held out in in Romans 8, uh, the creation groaning with eager longing for the redemption of the sons of God. Um, You know, the the creation itself expecting to be redeemed and expecting to be made new. Um, And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. And then with the title that he re- that God received in chapter 1, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, and with the description here of what it means, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. This is imagery that is taken, uh, that is very close to some of the things we run into in the Gospel of John, for example. So in John uh, 4.14, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, what does he tell her? He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then just a few verses later in John 7.37, Jesus stands up in the middle of, of the Feast of Booths and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's what we see here, right? To the thirsty, God giving from the spring of the water of life without payment. Uh, notice also the the idea of water coming from the temple, which of course we saw in the final vision of Ezekiel, which will receive a much more specific fulfillment actually in chapter 22. Um, the one who conquers will have this heritage, okay? Again, think of the letters in the beginning of Revelation, the one who conquers to the one who conquers to the one who conquers. The, well, the one who conquers will have this this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Um, I think you could say she as well here. Um, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars— Okay, because those who have not been redeemed, their lives are characterized by these things. That doesn't mean Christians never fall into these things, but when they do, they confess them to God. They bring him. They, they bring it to the cross for for forgiveness, and they get up and they walk forward and they bear fruit because of God's Spirit living within them. But as for those whose lives are characterized by these things, their portion, it says, will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is now the second time the second death has been mentioned. Um, remember back in, in the uh, in the millennial kingdom, right? Blessed, uh, chapter 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay. 
Then we come to verse 9, where one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, this is perhaps the judgment bowls that we saw earlier, uh, full of the seven last plagues, spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Um, so here now we're going to have that bridal imagery mixed once again with the imagery of a set of the city, right? He's saying, I'm going to show you the bride and look what he shows him. He carries him away in the spirit to a high mountain, just like Ezekiel had been led to a high mountain in chapter 40, verse two, when he was shown his vision of the new temple. Um, and he showed me again, not a bride coming down, but a holy city coming down. The city is the bride. The bride is the city. The holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, which I think if you put this uh, chapter kind of together, uh, John glimpses it perhaps from afar, but in here now he's given a much more intimate look. And um, and he, he sees it, this city coming down out of heaven from God. God is the one who is like generating this having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And who in Revelation is the one whose appearance is like jasper? Well, that would be God, back in chapter 4, verse 3. When we first saw the one on the throne, his appearance was described this way as well, right? So we, we the city, bear his glory, shine with his radiance, um, and the and the city looks like God is described to look like. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, right? Remember the angels accompanying the churches, right? The angels overseeing the, uh, the, the affairs of the people of God in the world. So 12 gates with 12 angels, and on the name of, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And then he looks at the wall, in verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Look here at the unity of the people of God. There is not two people of God. There is one people of God composed of the faithful of Israel and the church. And um, here, I don't think I need to point it out, but maybe I will. Um, the the number 12 is all over this vision because we are seeing the people of God here. And remember how I've mentioned that in in um, in Revelation numerology, 12 almost, if not always, represents the people of God. And the one who spoke with me, that angel who led him on top of that mountain, had a measuring rod, just like the guide that um, that Ezekiel had, right? He had a measuring rod. But this guy's measuring rod is of gold, uh, and he's going to measure the city with it and its gates and its walls. But now his task is going to be a lot more than Ezekiel's guide was because he measured the city with his rod, and this city is 1,200 stadia, again, a multiple of 12. Now, um, 1,200 stadia, okay, and it says its length and its width and its height are equal. So 1,200 stadia by 1,200 stadia by 1,200 stadia. Um, the imagery of 12 is here and 1200 stadia is about a hundred miles. Okay. So this thing is, is, is immense. It is a hundred miles in every direction and also a hundred miles high. Okay. That's in outer space. You're in outer space uh, somewhere between 62 and 76 miles up. Okay. This is, uh, this is a, this is a big, this is a big city. This is, this is not like Portland, Maine or something. Um, and, um, 
and he measured the wall and the wall. Notice also you get multiples of 12, 12 times 12, 12, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. I'm not sure why he mentions that, um, but uh, okay. A cubit is an angel's measurement. The wall was built of Jasper. There's Jasper again, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. So a couple things here now. So first of all, as I've made clear, this, or I hope, is that the city is a perfect cube, okay? It's it's uh, the same uh, distance high as it is wide as it is deep. And the only other cube that you have in Scripture like that is the Holy of Holies itself, First Kings 6.20 tells us this, that its dimensions being 20 by 20 by 20, a little smaller than the city, I would say. Uh, those are cubits, by the way. Um, uh, so it's portrayed as this holy of holies. And what inside the, what is the temple pretty much lined with? What precious metal? Gold. And here now, this city is made of gold. And it's adorned with every kind of jewel. Who was the last one that we saw in Revelation, really the only other one, who is adorned with jewels? Well, that was the harlot right? She was adorned with jewels and she had some gold. She had a golden cup in her hand. And I think this has implications for our understanding of her, that we are to understand the great harlot as a cheap knockoff of God and what is his. And and the, the, the harlot, right, is again, according to the dwellers of the earth, like the best, the best thing ever, okay? The most impressive stuff of any age, the most ex- uh, impressive achievements of humanity of any age. And here, she is but just this she she can't even compare there's no comparison um and then it goes and it lists all of the the jewels first being jasper again of course and the 12 gates were 12 pearls each made of a single pearl i would like to eat that oyster and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass and i love that imagery right there right because if you're in the ancient world i, I mean you kind of even see this today right like the street I mean, it's functional, right? It's got to be, it should be paved and stuff, but it's not nice. Like you got to spit, spit on the street. You smoke in the cigarette, throw the butt on the street. Um, There, there might, and and in ancient cities, right? You've got, you know, sewage running down the street and, and the street is made of the most precious metal that we have. Okay. That's, that's the description here. I think that's the import here. And then he says, I saw no temple in the city. Which is weird, right? Because I thought that this was supposed to resemble Ezekiel's vision, right? No, the, the Ezekiel's vision had, was, you know, certainly a new Jerusalem, and it had a fabulous temple. Here, notice how this is surpassing even that. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Okay, the dwelling place of God with man is itself is God Himself. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light. Okay, the glory of God is often described as bright, as radiant. Remember, it, the earth shines with it as, as, as God moves across the earth. And its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Remember what those Old Testament promises are like. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, a powerful symbol, of course, which speaks of God's perfect memory of, of who is his. It is as if their names are written in a book. And um, now before we finish up today, I want to say a few more things about some uh, ideas from the Old Testament that are that are wrapped up here. So first of all, the 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 thing about the nations, right, and the kings of the earth bringing their glory into it. Okay, um, this seems to be very much reflective of certain things that are said in Isaiah chapter fifty very clearly. But the ideas are in a lot of other prophetic passages. So Isaiah sixty one through five reads: Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But Yahweh will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Notice how similar. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Do you see how similar that is? And then in verses 10 through 11 of Isaiah 60, foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, right? That's that's what is said here of the of the the new Jerusalem. Day and night they shall not be shut that my people may bring to you the wealth of the nations. Now, reading that in Isaiah, right? That that's kind of like classic uh yeah, the the Jewish people are literally going to return to the land and they're going to receive Jerusalem back and God's going to fulfill these, you know, kind of like dispensational premillennial what's good um, theology what's going that's what's you know it's texts like these that really really um would be cited right but i think again i said i say like if you want to think that about the millennium i don't uh, i'm not going to stand in your way i'm not going to try to you know argue strongly against that or anything but that needs to be seen as still yet a partial fulfillment of what is fully fulfilled here that this is the this is the ultimate realization of those land promises of the people uh, coming to the land and the nations coming to the land and participating in um, this ultimate glorious future that God has for His people. Uh, the other uh, Old Testament reference that I would be remiss to omit here is the whole idea of a new heavens and a new earth. And I know I've spoken about this here, and I spoke about this when we were in Isaiah, okay? But this is drawn uh, very much from the visions of Isaiah in chapter 65, 17 through 25. So there that reads, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in her the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Okay, right? He will wipe every tear from their eye. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. 
Um, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. And that's not all that Isaiah has to say about the new heavens and the new earth, because he returns to it at the very end of the book. Um, And he says, for as the new heavens, this is chapter 66, verse 22, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. All right, that's it for today. And I very much look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Uh, That's the last time you're going to hear me say that on this round, uh, because tomorrow is our final day. And until then, as always, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.